0: There is no reforming the schools. The options are survival or escape. But this realization actually marks the beginning of a new and fulfilling educational journey
1: for both students and parents. Welcome to the School Sucks Project.
0: Our mission is to provide clarity, support, and empowerment
1: to parents who are concerned and frustrated with the content and culture of the public schools. We achieve this mission through the creation of
0: educational and entertaining media and the development of supportive communities. Continuously building a more detailed picture
1: of what genuine self-directed education can look like. We are determined to pursue this mission because we understand the dangers of indoctrination,
0: toxic school culture, and short-sighted education policies. And we deeply value intrinsically motivated learning, autonomy, and choice in education. And please remember... The three important facts we first tried to share when we started in 2009. The schools will not improve. Higher education will not improve. The political conversation about these institutions will not improve. Only we can improve. So let's begin.
1: How to move home after college with your dignity intact. After four years of freedom, moving back home can feel a little surreal. Keep the big picture in mind, and you can cohabitate in style. You will need Maturity and self-confidence. Step 1. Transitioning from college to the real world is no easy feat, so move home. Take a little time to chill out and get your head together before launching into full-fledged adulthood. Use your downtime to set goals and investigate career options. Step 2. Talk with your parents and lay down some mutually agreeable house rules. That 10 p.m. curfew needs to be a thing of the past, but you might have to compromise in other areas.
0: Hello and welcome back to The Essential School Sucks, number 19. As we come to the end of our second section, leaving institutional schooling and finding educational alternatives, this show is called Succeeding Without Schooling, and it was the very first conversation of what turned out to be many, many conversations with Zach Slabeck, who was part of the founding team at Praxis
1: college is this weird extension of adolescence, right? Like adolescence itself is kind of a weird thing. Like 16 year olds are not supposed to be treated as children. They should be treated as adults. College kids are not really treated as adults, especially with the the current climate that we have on college campuses, but they're not really treated as children, especially by their parents. I I, I don't wanna say I don't wanna say like, you know, if we got rid of school that'd be the panacea for curing a lot of the world's ills, but it probably would actually cure a lot of problems in the long run.
0: I think so. I think we'd have a society of people who would have to grow up a lot faster. You know, you mentioned extending adolescence that is one of the most crippling features of not just the lower levels of school but but even higher education as yeah. well you're 23 years old before you have a chance to be in relationships with people that are you know not authority and underling type right. relationships <laughs> You know, right. you don't have friends who are people that you would respect and look up to. Your friends are people just like you. And and that's I think that a part of that is people tend to gravitate with people who make them feel OK about how they're doing, not people right. who want to make them better. I think that's yeah. unfortunate. But after 12 years of school, why would hmm. you do anything else? What, adults are the people you stay away from. Adults right. are the people watching you. Adults are the people who yell at you. Why would you want to go anywhere near them? Everybody, as I already mentioned, this was the first of an extensive collection of conversations in the School Sucks Library with Zach Slayback. Most of those conversations focus on career advice for young people. Zach is an entrepreneur. He's a writer, a speaker. Focusing primarily on the issues of education, innovation, and philosophy. This conversation was six years ago, so I will promise you a lot has changed in Zach's life since then. I think he was about 23 or 24 at the time. But there will be more of Zach in the Essential School Sucks collection. This is where our professional relationship started. And at the risk of being presumptuous, I'm gonna say a lot's changed in all of our lives over the last six years. In fact, in that intro clip, that isolated clip from the show where Zach and I are talking about college and adolescence and this weird period of life, I say something towards the end of like, kids don't want to go anywhere near adults because of the relationships that they form with adults through the schools. I was wrong and I found out that I was wrong about that then anyway, current generation of college kids and how different they were from people my age when we went through college as far as our relationship with adults in positions of authority was concerned. When I was in college, when it came to residential life, let's say, we didn't want anything to do with adults. We wanted them out of our business as much as possible. We solved our own problems. We moved off campus as quickly as we could. In fact, me and my group of friends, the adults in positions of authority at our college, they strongly recommended that we leave campus at the end of our freshman year. When I said that to Zach, I was probably just six months away from realizing that that crop of college students was all about needing adults, all about running to adults with every single problem on campus. Those people graduated and they went out into the real world and they got jobs in education and journalism and human resources and law and look at us all now, huh? What a couple of years it's been. Yeah, so this was the end of 2016 and it was in 2017 on the show that I started paying more attention to campus culture. And it was then I realized how this generation of young adults was willing to put their full faith and trust into a collection of really unimpressive authority figures. That trend has continued right up to the current moment. Like we talked about in the earlier episode of The Essential School Sucks with Dan Sanchez, school has robbed young people of their why. That angst has been co-opted. And today you can, as a young person, have the safest most blue-pilled most focus group tested and approved set of political and cultural beliefs available in the world and still fancy yourself part of some kind of a resistance you can see (laughs) you can see it this week in the news anyway this show is one of the most shared one of the most linked conversations in the entire school sucks collection of episodes It is one of my all-time favorite shows. Zach was one of my all-time favorite guests. This is a conversation that focuses primarily around the idea of building a better credential than the college degree, a more updated credential than the college degree. This conversation with Zach was shortly after I first discovered Praxis, and I recognized how valuable it was, and it only took me six years to form an official partnership with them promoting their service to the young people and the families who need it now more than ever. Originally released October 10th, 2016, as podcast 454, Building a Better Credential Than the College Degree with Zach Slayback. But also stay tuned until after the show. There are some important updates on how the Praxis program works. While the spirit of the organization, the philosophy of the organization uh, remains the same, Praxis is under entirely different ownership now. The people who run it today actually were graduates of this original form of Praxis that you're about to hear us discuss in this audio. How about that? Move! Fred here. Today is October 9th. And if this is the first show you've ever listened to for the School Socks podcast, I'm going to say you're in the right place. This would be an okay place to start. I've got Zach Slayback. He is one of the founding members of Praxis. And we're going to talk about what Praxis is. You might remember my show from a few months ago with Isaac Morehouse. He's also uh, one of the founding members of Praxis. They are positioning their organization as a very, very sensible alternative for some people to the college experience of the 21st century. Zach Slaback also wrote a book called The End of School, Reclaiming Education from the Classroom. And I've only ever talked to him once, but this guy is one of my new best friends. I want to have him back on the show frequently. So as the title suggests, we're going to talk about this effort, an effort in which I would certainly enthusiastically participate to build a better credential than the college degree. Why do they tell us we have to go to high school and graduate from high school? To get into college, of course. Why do we have to go to college? Well, to get the best job ever. If there was a better, more meaningful credential for employers, then college could become increasingly irrelevant. And the feeder of the colleges, the high school, would also become harder to justify. After that, folks, the dominoes start to fall. If there's no need for high school, what the fuck are you doing in middle school? You see where this is going? It's a really exciting day. And you'll hear me say to Zach a few times, uh, how can I help? Well, it starts with this conversation. Hey, you know, at the beginning of the show, I played that little how cast about, you know, moving in with your parents. I don't want to shame people for doing that. And in fact, I'll tell you a story before we get started with today's show. After I graduated from college, shortly after, I moved back in with my mom temporarily. And uh, just this is what happened. So I graduated from college in May 2000. And at the time, I was working at the residential school. It was called the Bennington School. And uh, I continued to work there. For almost a year after graduation, and I started to get very restless. I had taken a job that I could do while I was in school. I was called a residential counselor. I just helped out in the dorms, recreated with kids, activities of daily living, stuff like that. and I said, "This is no career, you know I'm 21 years old. it's time to uh, to make something happen here." So in April of 2001, I quit. I polished up my little resume. It was one page at the very top of it. It said, Bachelors in Communications. So you know I mean business. It did say that. Recruiters told me to take it off. And um, I went on this website called Monster.com. Have you heard about this? Lots of jobs back then on Monster.com. I had a lease that happened to be ending in an apartment in Bennington, Vermont, where I lived. So I devoted myself full-time to this job search, and I was looking mostly in the Boston area. So I moved back in with my mother in New Hampshire, and me and my college diploma went on a lot of frustrating interviews where they wanted more experience. But it was that spring, so it only took a couple of months, I landed my dream job, my 22-year-old dream job, as the assistant marketing director of a beautiful ski resort in western Massachusetts, about 30 miles south of where I had been living and working and going to school since the mid-'90s. So I was familiar with the area, and it was great. So me and my former college roommate, Scott, who went on to be a sports editor for first the newspaper there and then a larger newspaper in Rhode Island, we got this beautiful apartment in North Adams, Massachusetts. I'm making this story longer than it needs to be. I hope you're listening at 1.5 times speed. French doors, beautiful kitchen cabinets, gorgeous wide plank hardwood floors, stained glass windows. Now, it wasn't cheap. The rent was like $450, which came out to 225 each, but that's before utilities. One of those utilities was the internet. I think it was $9. I was in heaven. I had a four-wheeler. I had a walkie-talkie. I had a four-wheeler. I had a digital camera. When the snow came, I was told I would have my own snowmobile. Now, remember poor Dwight Schrute, who used to like to tell himself he was the assistant whatever when he was really the assistant to the whatever. This was the opposite case. The title of the job was assistant director of marketing. It was really the assistant to the director of marketing. Uh, Part of my responsibility was to get lunch for all the executives and then trundle into their Friday meeting with bags and call out names of meals. And they'd raise their hand, and I would bring them their styrofoam container uh, we took most of our business, the ski business, or that resort anyway, most of our business came from the New York metro area, including upstate New Jersey. Shortly thereafter, our hopes for a big winter, along with uh, you know the hopes of many resorts that counted on business from New York, got 9 11 By 9-11, I was laid off, I think, that November, and I quickly found myself back in North Adams collecting unemployment and looking out my beautiful stained glass window just sitting there saying, I, I should have just stayed at home. So, you know, I didn't want anyone to feel like I included that introduction to shame people because it's perfectly understandable. I include it because considering that college is such a huge investment of time and money and energy, it is really disconcerting that it is becoming standard practice for people to graduate from there and move back home. They're making how-to videos about it, for goodness sake. And in that video, I mean, this is just one video. The lady says that once you get home and settled in and you have some time to relax, you can start thinking about career options. Well, that would not be my recommended order of operations. And I think today's guest, Zach Slabeck, would agree. His organization, Praxis, is helping to create opportunities for people as young as 18 to be successfully on their way down a self-directed and intrinsically motivated career path. In less than a year. This is one of my favorite shows in recent memory. I hope you enjoy it as well. If you would like me to bring you more great conversations with people like Zach Slayback and even Zach Slayback himself again in the future, I'm going to ask that you support the School Sucks Project. There's a link in the show notes to our Patreon page. We're about 60% of the way to our goal. Sign up to support us. That way, you get access to literally hundreds, figuratively trillions of hours of sweet, sweet bonus content. So I hope you do it. Every time I say this, I'm very serious. I don't know if people think it's a bit, but we'd really appreciate your support. And speaking of support, and this is the last thing before we get to Zach. I want to dedicate this show to a listener named Daniel, who sent me the most beautiful handwritten thank you letter. And I just wanted to read you a couple lines. Obviously, I'm not going to read you the whole thing. You have taught me how to learn. You have showed me how to be creative. You have provided an insane amount of inspiration and modeled for me the honesty, sincerity, purposefulness, and all of those attitudes I admire and foster. This was, um, I've I've been traveling back to where I grew up, to my mom's, staying at my mom's house, which I, as I said earlier, there's no shame in that. Um, I, I do it, you know, on the weekend or every other weekend but after we talked for an hour, they were drinking. They got quite silly, these old ladies. And I don't drink, so i fully taking in the silliness. For We talked about, like, transgender issues for an hour, and I shared some thoughts. But then the conversation turned to, what do I do? So I was explaining the School Sucks project, and people were being nice. They're doing the, oh, that's very interesting and different thing, but really not knowing what to make of it. So... At that point, my mom, who is supportive of the show, says, oh, I just remembered, there's a package for you in my car. She talks exactly like that. She grew up in East Boston. I'm doing like a perfect impression of her right now. So I go and get it, and it's this uh, FedEx Express. And I open it, and the letter is inside. And I, I read the letter. Suddenly, these three people, who probably haven't put a tremendous amount of thought into the issues or the practices that we discuss on this show, they suddenly understand so much more about what I do and why. And uh, I think everyone, certainly including myself, was very, very moved by that. So this show is dedicated to Daniel. And fortunately, one of the themes that he discussed in his letter is very, very present in today's show. So here's my conversation with the very cool. Remember how I said in the last show, you're going to be seeing more cool people? Zach Slayback. Thanks for listening, everybody, and take care. welcome to School Sucks Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on, Brett. You are the co-founder of Praxis, and uh, you're also the author of a book called The End of School, which sounds like it's right up our alley. Uh, Let's talk first a little bit about Praxis.
1: I was on the founding team of Praxis, and I am currently the business development director. So my job is actually to go out and uh, find companies to host our apprentices. So Praxis is a nine-month kind of college alternative uh, apprenticeship program. Mm-hmm. We we want to provide people with the opportunity to learn by doing in the real world, uh, to immerse themselves in high-growth startups and doing things like marketing, business development, sales, all the while actually learning things that they'll use through their lives And learning things that we do think are important, like liberal arts education, philosophy, history, economics, a lot of the most successful entrepreneurs that we know are also intellectuals. Mm -hmm. And I think that those subjects are too important to just, you know, put in the ivory tower for four years.
0: Yeah, you feel like that's kind of a a waste of an opportunity and a waste of talent, especially with how things are going in, in higher education, especially the upper echelons of higher education these days?
1: Oh, man. I mean, I see so many of my friends and classmates from college, from high school, uh, going for four years. And I, I wonder sometimes, this is not so much directed at my friends, <laughs> but I wonder if you did like a cognitive ability test at 18 and then another one at 22. Uh, I think for a lot of people, you would actually see their ability to do, to think abstractly and to think critically would actually decline <laughs> <laughs> yeah. over those four years.
0: And what do you think that is? What do you think causes that?
1: So people don't go to college to learn. When, you know, when I go, I'm sometimes on college campuses and I I talk about things like this, talk about, you know, entrepreneurship and social change and higher education. And without fail, whether I am on, you know, a small commuter campus or an Ivy League university uh, or a major research university, I will ask the students, you know, how many of you, if you had to pay the amount of money you're paying, if you had to spend the amount of time you're spending... Uh, you still got to learn everything you're learning. Uh, would you still be here? You just would not get the credential at the end of those four years. Without fail, <laughs> nobody raises their
0: hands. Exactly. Exactly. So
1: the reason people go is to get a job, right?
0: Exactly. They're, the, yeah.
1: they're there to get a credential that will allow them to get a job when they're done. So the, the, the learning is just kind of like a secondary effect of that. And someone who does – who will be there even without that credential – They should become an academic because academia is designed to create academics.
0: Indeed. Now, I don't want to I don't want to name this show, Zach, something like stupid old college versus exciting new praxis. (laughs) But I do see the two very much, um, even though praxis is small and doesn't have anywhere near the institutional power of some of these, you know, upper level uh, universities. This is a, a really, really exciting alternative. And I've heard you talk about the need to build a better credential. Right. Th- this morass exists because this is how people get credentialed today. Right, and if exactly. we if if we could just offer something better, when I first heard you say that, my attitude was like what can I do to help? Because that is what is keeping this institution alive. There seems to be a consensus with the academics that I've talked to that this system can't justify its its own existence for much more than a decade or two. But that message isn't going down to all of the, the young kids that I hope to reach who are still being encouraged to apply. If you get into this school, you have to go to this school because it's such yep. great opportunities. So yeah, let's talk about this idea of, of the better credential. And what do you envision when you tell people that?
1: Yeah, so I think that when we think about disrupting higher education, you know, if you're in the startup world disrupting something, I think TechCrunch even calls their big conference disrupt. You know, that's a that's a fun word. When you're thinking about disrupting higher education, the most disruptive companies in higher education aren't companies like Coursera or MIT Open Courses or things like that. These big MOOCs, right? Right. They're not delivery mechanisms. The most disruptive companies in higher education, I, I hope Praxis would be up there, but really at the end of the day, they're LinkedIn and Google. Those are the most disruptive companies because I can learn more about somebody by looking at their LinkedIn profile or by Googling them than I can learn about them by telling me that they went to, you know, they went to Penn State or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I might I might be able to glean oh maybe you like football from that, but that's about it. Uh, when you're building a better credential, you need to understand that the credential is a heuristic for hiring, for investing, for, uh, you know, going to, into business with people If you can signal the value that you can add uh, to an organization or working with somebody just as quickly or more quickly, then I think that that's what that credential is going to be. And I think the way you do that in the 21st century in the age of the Internet is you actually go out and you build things. You can actually create that social proof. It's ridiculously easy.
0: So the, the attraction to practice, obviously, I'm a big fan and in many respects a student of John Taylor Gatto right mm-hmm. and this yeah. was uh, so ever present through his work is this idea of taking control of your own future, your own existence. I wrote it down. How do you describe Praxis? The accelerator for the startup of you, (laughs) right? So I've been a big fan of that idea, Gatto's idea of the lost apprenticeship, which pretty much, I mean, in a lot of professions, it is essentially lost. You just can't get, I mean, I remember I was talking a couple of days ago to Ben Settle, email marketing uh, entrepreneur, and uh, he does a lot of coaching uh, with people who are struggling through that. Process And we were talking about getting out of college 15 years ago with these communications degrees and basically going into job interviews and argue, arguing with the people interviewing us about, no, well, no, I just spent $60,000. I just endured all this useless crap to show this thing to you that you were supposed to exchange with me for, for a job. Even 15 years ago, I found a lot of the industries in which I wanted to work and eventually I had to find my own way to mm-hmm. be in radio and TV you couldn't even get a foot in the door without three years' experience, even with yeah. this degree that you that you now had to pay for. So how does that work as far as Praxis is concerned? Like the time somebody spends with you and yeah. the experience they get, how does that translate into, say, a portfolio or a profile that they can mm-hmm. show employers as a substitute for the traditional credentials?
1: Yeah, through the program, we have this big emphasis on deliverables. Uh, If you want to do marketing or if you want to do sales, we have this emphasis on, okay, you need to actually do something that you can show off to other people that has been at least somewhat successful, right? And the thing with, honestly, the thing with most young people is a lot of young people get ideas, but they don't actually jump on them. So if you actually even just do something, whether it's successful or not, that's a positive signal in most cases through the six months when they're working at the company, the whole program is nine months. They do three months of training with us first and then six months at the company. And then they have a coach the whole time over the entirety of those nine months. Their coach helps them put together these deliverables. So if they're in sales, they might put together a sales plan. Uh, They might put together a pitch deck. They might put together a lead generation platform. Uh, If they are in marketing, they might do a marketing campaign. Uh, If they're a utility player for the company, you know, maybe they'll do, they'll be launching a new product and, we have them do at the very beginning of the program, we have all of them build their own website. And it's usually like name, lastname.com, right? So like right. my website's zackslayback.com, Isaac's is, uh, isaacmorehouse.com. You know, a lot of my colleagues, same thing. And we want them to be able to put up on their website the things that they have done. Uh, and that is more than anything else. I, I, I've had business partners of ours who have hired our participants solely on the fact that the participant has sat down and blogged for 30 days straight. And they're like, wow, that actually takes a lot of commitment. And that's really hard to find from an 18, 19, 20-year-old. And they can write well. And they know more from that than they know from, you know, I have a degree in, you know, like writing
0: mm-hmm, from mm-hmm.
1: some like fifth-tier school somewhere. So for us, it's it's all about actually taking what they're doing at their business partner, what they want to achieve. When I interview candidates for the program, uh, I ask them, you know, what are your three-year goals? Where do you want to be in three years? and trying to get them to those three year goals in nine months and we focus on breaking that down into like little milestones along the way and that's what i think those deliverables are
0: absolutely so how are you getting the word out about this mm-hmm. opportunity like there's a lot of people who need this right but you know they need cars but through their schooling if they're 17 or 18 years old they're you know filling out applications to get faster horses cuz that's what they yeah. think they you know that's what they think they need so how are uh, what's the outreach for praxis like or even just for this this idea generally what are you guys doing
1: yeah, that's that's a really good question. Uh, we do a variety of different things. You know, we have got a couple different verticals that most of our participants fall into. Uh, the homeschool community is great. Uh, they love us. We love them. You know, Isaac, our CEO, is homeschooled. He unschools his children. So we'll go to homeschool conferences. Uh, we'll market to them in particular. We really, really like them. Um, some of our best participants. You know, I, I think immediately of uh, Charles Porges and Diana Zitting. They're two of our uh, ones. A current participant. One's an alum. And they were homeschooled, you know, they started the program at 17. Oh, nice. And, they, by, yeah, by the time they're 18, they've got, you know, full-time jobs that are on an executive track. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll, we'll focus on communities that are already kind of aligned with us in the sense homeschoolers are. Uh, we will go to young libertarian conferences because those people kind of get, you know, the, the philosophical alignment of going a little bit against the grain. We're not ideological one way or the other, uh, but we really – Resonate a lot with that community. Uh, You know, things like this. Conversations like the one that we're having right now. And surprisingly... I I I've been amazed at the number of teachers. I mean, I know you you were a teacher at yeah. one point. Um I've been amazed at the number of teachers who are excited about having people like me come into their classrooms and talk to their talk to their students like you don't need to do this. You don't need to jump on the conveyor belt of higher education. You can do something else. Because a lot of teachers, you know, like like yourself and like Gatto and others, they know this is something of the system. It's not something of, you know, if, if we just changed how student loans are done, then, oh, everything would be better, right? It, it's much more institutionalized.
0: Yeah. Like there'd be some kind of improvement in the situation if we found government programs to make the entire thing more valueless. <laughs> that, yeah. that seems to be what's what was proposed yeah, in, exactly. in this most recent election by by the left. No. So I heard- No, I, I actually,
1: yeah. you know what, if I can just throw it in here, I love the idea of the government just subsidizing uh, uh, college degrees because it means they're going to become even more worthless.
0: Indeed. Well, yeah, I, I I agree in the long run. I think there's a rough period in between. Like, for example, mm-hmm. I have a 16 year old nephew. You probably maybe you have people that age in your family. I actually you know, this is a good point to interject here, because I think mm-hmm. I, I've said something that contradicts something I've heard you say. When people ask me for advice about going yeah. to college, I would say in in this climate, the only thing you should consider doing is going to a top school that has a sizable endowment You know that can change very very quickly. Like I went I went to college for communications in the late 90s. By the time I graduated, my degree was obsolete. The school didn't have the money to update the program for the uh, you know transfer from analog to digital uh, Mm. ways of doing things generally. So if you go to a big school that has a lot of money coming in, you know they can adapt with the times more readily, and uh, you still graduate with a piece of paper that actually means something, but. From your experience, and you are uh, an Ivy League opt out. You left mm-hmm. uh, the University of Pennsylvania, right? Mm-hmm. You've actually. It, se- it seems like from some of the stories I've heard you tell that what I've been saying is bad advice. That in some cases, a top school degree can actually be a kind of employment liability.
1: Yeah. So there's there's an interesting there's an interesting cultural phenomenon at top schools in particular. Um, and in, in employment. Uh, so there, there's both, there's two sides of the issue, right? If you're a young person graduating from a top university, there's this pressure for you to go work at particularly prestigious institutions because anything else is seen as kind of like a waste of your degree. Uh, you know, I saw this at Penn. A lot of my classmates, by the time they were sophomores or juniors, they didn't want to go into like investment banking, but, you know, most people from Penn actually go into investment banking or consulting. Uh, So there's this pressure internally in the school for people to go that way. And, you know, cultures are spontaneous orders. They're products of, you know, human action, but not of human design. So I don't like blame any particular person or group of people for this. There's also this hyper competitive mindset where it's that, oh, I need to be one step ahead of the other people that I am around. Uh, Peter Thiel, the PayPal co-founder, talks about this in his book Zero to One a lot and really, really hits on that. Well, the other is on the employment side. Yeah. I have met employers who if they're looking for somebody who – you know to be, do an entry-level sales job and they see someone who graduated from a top school, uh, that can be – that can make that person look a little overqualified because the employer is then thinking kind of the flip side of what I just mentioned where it's like, OK, why is this person coming to apply for a $30,000 a year sales job with my company when I know that they should be able to go get like a consulting job somewhere with like Deloitte or whoever? So – that raises some red flags on the employer's side. Mm-hmm. The the strength of the signal from the institution really, I, unless you are going to some of these very highly selective companies, um, you know, like for example, I think Facebook usually when they're doing on campus recruiting only recruits from a handful of schools. They will hire dropouts, but you just have to do it through a different kind of uh, a different kind of process. Unless you are really focusing on that, then. Yeah, the elite degree can be a particularly bad signal, especially if you don't have the opportunity to tell someone like, oh, I got financial aid and I didn't actually have to pay for most of this because uh, Penn, for example, is like $250,000 a year right now. Um, a year someone, or a, a year? I'm sorry, uh, for four years, for, uh, per degree, not, not a year. Uh, not yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but what I'm when I see someone who graduates from a school like that and if I assume that they're they just paid full tuition, then I just have to wonder like what's wrong with this person?
0: It sounds like for some people there's almost a kind of resignation in, like, they're a freshman, like, say, finance manager, it's a, a major at somewhere like Columbia, yeah, and they say, I never worked for Goldman Sachs, but yeah. by the time they're a junior, that's, like, the only way forward. That yeah, exactly. that happens a lot. Do you think the yeah. schools contribute to that kind of culling, or or I guess hurting people in that direction? Because these these big financial institutions on Wall Street and elsewhere, they I mean they rely on these schools. Right. They, you know right. they rely on those degree programs to feed their institutions, and they probably even invest uh, a sizable amount of money in getting those young recruits in there for maybe a low wage, considering their worth to the company at first.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, no, I mean it's entirely there's no like there's no clear malice here, right? I'm not mm-hmm. pointing fingers and saying like anybody's necessarily evil sure, or wrong. Sure. It's entirely rational on the part of, you know, Goldman Sachs or formerly Lehman Brothers, um these big institutions, right, up on on Wall Street. But I do think the schools do contribute to it culturally. Um, again, culture is a, is a kind of tricky thing to to parse out. uh if you put a lot of people who are big fish in small ponds into a big pond with a lot of other really big fish, they're going to start focusing on each other and mimicking each other. yeah, and the result of that is no innovation. The result of that is no nobody doing anything new. It's everybody doing what everybody else is doing, right? Mm-hmm. And it's circular. So you end up seeing people, yeah, i I had friends uh, at Penn who. They came in their freshman year and they wanted to be entrepreneurs or they maybe wanted to – maybe they were a finance major at Wharton and they wanted to go and maybe start their own fintech company someday or something like that. But by the time they're sophomores or juniors or seniors, they all want to go to Goldman Sachs because anything else is seen as a a waste of that degree. Right. And it's entirely rational for the school. It's entirely rational for uh, these large institutions to go in and try to create that kind of culture. Uh, How you fix it, I don't know. I, I, if I did, I'd probably be a lot wealthier myself.
0: Sure, you know, while we're talking about the reasons why institutions do things, and you know, I, I feel like I'm going to make all of these things sound more nefarious than they actually are. So you can help <laughs> well, me I with mean, that.
1: So, so, but Gatto, Gatto makes this point, right? Yeah. In the underground history, he says, you know, this sounds like a conspiracy. This sounds like uh, like a cabal. The scary thing is, it's not.
0: Right. Why would you be told about it? <laughs> right. So when you do uncover it, yes, it is very much uh, we never went to the moon type stuff, you know, exactly. But, uh, yeah, it's perfectly rational. So let's talk about the rationale of the colleges themselves. And I've heard some of your conversations about the college admissions process. I don't Mm -hmm. remember what I thought the goals of the college were when I was applying for college. In, in the mid-1990s, like why a college would want me, what their considerations would be. I mean, I understood these things much better when I became a college consultant and an SAT tutor, and, you know, just the size of the institution determines the the weight they're going to put on metrics like test scores. So if an institution is huge, that's all they're looking at, and if an institution is small and only gets, you know, a few thousand applicants a year, they're going to be look, taking a more holistic Look at who you are, obviously, as a person. But I I think when I was in uh, secondary school, when I was in high school, it didn't even occur to me that a college would have an agenda, an admissions department would have an agenda. It was just a school. The school was just the thing you did. And this was just the extension of that. It was just the 13th grade. But what are a college's goals, or at least these upper level colleges, when it comes to the college admission process? What are their motives?
1: We we need to do away with this notion of like for profit versus nonprofit colleges, right? Mm-hmm. People ask me all the time, like, oh, is, is Praxis for profit or nonprofit? And I say we're for profit, but that's because we think profit and loss are really important signals, and we actually want to report to our customers. At the end of the day, students at f- whether for profit colleges, whether they're ITT Tech or Kaplan, uh, or nonprofit colleges, whether they're Penn or uh, Pittsburgh or whatever, they're not the customers. They are input. And that's really, really important uh, to understand. The university has an incentive to maximize its endowment. This becomes very, very clear if you understand why people are paid high wages, people are paid wages as a function of the of the value that they add to the organization that they work at. University presidents make a ton of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, like Amy Gutman, who's the President of Penn, makes like I think she's the probably one of the best paid university presidents in in the country. And that's because she's a fundraiser. That's what university presidents are. Nonprofit presidents in general are fundraisers. So the university has an incentive to maximize its endowment. It has a short-term incentive to do that and a long-term incentive to do that. In the short term, that means getting people who are already donating to the organization or people who could donate to the organization, primarily alumni, uh, as well as the government giving grants and uh, student loans, all these other issues. But let's just do it in terms of the endowment, right? Primarily means getting the Alumni actually donate to the to the university. Well, so how does how does the admissions department do this? The admissions department has pressure on themselves; uh, it has pressure put on them to admit students who they think if they put them in front of like an alumni gala, the alumni will come back and they'll you know maybe a week later when they get the phone call uh, from the call center, which is. Usually staffed by students, mm-hmm. uh, they'll pull out the checkbook and be like, "Man, you know that was such a great alumni gala. I love you know the students that Penn is bringing in now. I feel so warm and fuzzy about it." And then they'll write a hundred dollar, uh, a hundred dollar, two hundred dollar, three hundred dollar check to the university. Right? Short term uh, profit right there. In the long term, you know, that sounds kind of nefarious, but it's true. You know, yeah. it, they they love to bring in. This is why it's great to admit people from you know lower income backgrounds because you can bring them up and you can say like, "Look, they're." Look at what the opportunity we're giving this bright young person that they've been able to work for themselves into. In the long term, the university also has an incentive to admit people that they think will be successful. Universities don't make people successful. You know, I, I think your listeners would get this, but like this is kind of a contrarian idea to a lot of people because people push their kids to go to schools where they're like, oh, well, successful people went to those schools. So I guess they – are successful because they went to those schools. No. Right, right, Universities know to select for people who have certain traits that will lend themselves to being successful later in life. Right. Um, a
0: lot of legacy stuff there, too, with families, yeah, obviously. Successful stuff, yeah, people go to those schools because they were successful. It's not how they right. became successful.
1: Right, right, exactly. So the university has a long-term incentive to admit students that they think, you know, 20, 30 years down the line, we'll pull out the checkbook after they go to the alumni gala. So, I mean... If you're, if I were consulting a, a college senior right now on their uh, writing their essays to get into college, play up this angle. That's what I would tell them. Um, that's the incentive for the for the organization. It's to maximize the opportunity for check writing to the endowment.
0: Mm-hmm. That's unfortunate that students don't know that, and I think it's a really important thing to know that if you are a certain caliber student or if you fit a certain profile, you are an object of display in yeah. in many ways. And then on the back end, you're somebody who pulls out your checkbook if right. all goes well, you know, 20, 30 years later. Coldly logical, but mm-hmm. it's – yeah, I just remember having a, a more warm and fuzzy attitude about the <sighs> higher education experience when I was 17 and filling out a bunch of Hey, I, when you go
1: through 12 years of, of schooling, I totally get why people have that, that mentality, uh, I, I find it, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about a, a couple minutes ago on employment and employability, I find it so totally absurd, so totally absurd that the people who are giving 17, 18 year olds career advice for how they should, you know, prepare themselves for the next couple years of their lives and probably the rest of their lives have never worked in anything else besides education. Whether they're guidance counselors or teachers or their parents who have very little idea of what their, their students, their children actually want because the school takes nine hours of the day from them every single day. Mm-hmm. So I, I just find it – I've, you know, I, I I've been kicked out of a couple of conferences, uh, high school conferences te- for telling co- uh, high school students this where I just tell them, I'm like, look, the people who are giving you advice have no idea what they're talking about because they've been totally removed from the workforce for 15 years.
0: I got to pause right there and ask: You've been invited to high school conferences, <laughs> like as a representative. I, I don't. I don't know if you've certainly not to promote your book, The End of School, but as a representative <laughs> of Praxis.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, yeah, I am still surprised, but you know, I, I I am, but I'm not. Like I said, a lot of teachers, and I've been actually emailing with a couple of my my own high school teachers. Uh and they told me they were like I love what you're doing. It seems like you're doing great things. Keep at it. Teachers get this. Um it, it's the people like the quasi bureaucrats who are the ones who don't usually which is sometimes guidance counselors. I've, I I've also met some really great guidance counselors. Uh but it's usually like sometimes guidance counselor types or people who like just run clubs for the schools. Um Teachers get this because I think they've seen a fair – I mean I've talked to teachers who have told me that they had a young person who graduated from their high school who was like a, a great student that they really liked who went off to college and is still emailing them for help while they're in college. Hey. And they realize like, holy crap. Yeah. Like <laughs> this is this is not the system that these young people think that it is that they're in, uh, enrolling in. Um But yeah, to answer your question, yes, I am. Um, I'm not thrown out that often anymore, (laughs) Um, but it has happened on a couple occasions.
0: Absolutely. My tenure as a teacher was relatively short because uh, the way I've described it is I would just do something and then I'd start finding why it wasn't actually a service, why it wasn't actually helping people. And then that would just gnaw away at me until I could find something else to do. Sometimes they were very lateral moves, you know, uh, even within the same organization, i have met public school teachers who have the same experience and i'm sure it has to be for any self-aware person it has to be fairly common that yeah. after you've been there a decade you know and and you you see the patterns and you in many cases see your ineffectiveness even if you're a great teacher and i think great teachers would be more susceptible to this yeah you have to start becoming really really frustrated But there's a kind of dependence on the job after a while, you know, and it's I don't know how people go about quieting that. I know some people are really, really torn by that. I mean, fortunately, I was always working in private organizations. So if, you know, I didn't like it, I could just negotiate. for There was a lot of flexibility with how I could move or how I could change. uh, And I know not everybody has that.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I know some of my best teachers from high school and elementary school, they retired early. Or they just, they just resign themselves to the fact like I will only be able to help a couple students a year. Uh, everybody else, you know, I, I just have to be a functionary for the testing regime, which is yeah. sad. I mean, it, it is. Uh, I, at no point do I ever want to paint teachers as like – as again, school itself – school is a culture, right? Like we we have to de-school ourselves as we leave school. Uh, and that means getting out of that kind of culture. But as a culture, it's something that – is not designed by any one person. It's something that we just all reinforce through our own actions. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I was speaking at a high school in Pittsburgh, uh, an economics teacher brought me in uh, where I was talking about as a young person today, the workforce is gonna be entirely different than uh, than even like the workforce that I graduated high school into just a couple of years ago. And, uh, I, mention mentioned the golden handcuffs and for those who are listening, who don't know what the golden handcuffs is or are, it's this idea that, uh, and I see this with a lot of people who I graduated from college, I did not graduate from college with, but who graduated from Penn that I went to college with and they go, they get a job, a really nice high paying job. And they tell themselves after a couple years, I'm going to quit and I'm going to go do something else. And then. The job just pays so well and there are so many perks that it's just very, very difficult to quit. So then they blink and then they're, you know, forty years old. They've got a mortgage, they've got kids, they've got a spouse that they have to take care of, and they can't quit because they've experienced lifestyle inflation where they've experienced where they need that ten, fifteen thousand dollars every month just to get by. I was talking about this and there was a teacher at the back of the room, the econ teacher, who brought me in and he said, Yeah, you know, you can have bronze handcuffs, too.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) He's like, I don't make that much money, but I can't quit my job. So I I think that's a big part of it, too. People, they get in, they get dependent on the job, and then it's like, well, what, what can I do?
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. When I was well paid, I had to make uh, a lot of like sideways moves to try and continue to like, Okay. well, this doesn't feel right. But certainly there there's a way to make this work. You know, I remember uh, having this uh, this meeting with the person who ran the tutoring company that I worked for um, and saying, I don't want to do academic tutoring anymore. Just give me SAT because the academic tutoring is the problem. That's the thing I have the problem with telling people they have to get better grades. I feel like I'm just an extension of the school. So you can continue to pay me (laughs) this amount of money, you know, per hour. uh, But I only want to do SAT tutoring. And she actually, I, I was actually able to do it, which was great. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of that justification.
1: Rationalization.
0: Rationalization. And looking to find a way to continue to make that work.
1: Absolutely. Right, exactly.
0: Yeah. So how and why, you mentioned this a second ago, did you go about extracting yourself from an Ivy League school when you were a sophomore?
1: So it depends on like how far back on the story do we want to go, right? Because I remember as like an elementary schooler, I I was brought up in like the age of No Child Left Behind. Mm -hmm. And I remember how absurd that was. And I remember hating the testing regime and feeling like that, that I'm just like a cog in a little machine. And I would find like little outlets through school, uh, whether it was like music or a friend and I in like the fourth grade started a satirical newspaper that we would sell. Um, and the, but eventually by the time I got to be like a junior in high school, a sophomore, or a junior, I was like, crap, you know, I, I, have to, I have to shut up and I have to play by the rules of the game. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I make sure I get into a, a prestigious university. I go there, I get a, a research fellowship while I'm there. Um, you know, which was fun. I got to, I got paid to read philosophy books. I can't actually <laughs> complain about that. Uh, but I was restless. I was so restless. And, you know, when I'm talking to young people, too, who are if, if my story, if what I'm about to say resonates with you, leave. You have to leave, because if you stay in it, you are going to resign yourself to drudgery for you're, you're going to wake up. You're going to have those golden handcuffs on and you're going to wonder, like, what you could have done. And that's a horrible feeling. So I felt myself very, uh restless right i wanted to build i wanted to create i studied philosophy because i i see philosophy as the building of ideas the building of systems of ideas right uh i also this is also why i'm really interested in economics economics is the study of human action it's not you know like dollars and cents but i ended up going to i was in the focus group actually for praxis initially and i ended up going to isaac our ceo and i told him let me just work for you for free (laughs) (laughs) on the weekends after class you know I understand like not everybody can do that, but I was fortunate to have a sizable financial aid package from the university. So let me just work for you for free. So I don't go crazy. And then after about a year of that, I noticed I can either, I could do many things mediocrely. And this is something you also see in elite higher education. Very few people are actually very good at anything. A lot of them are like okay at a lot of things, right? Uh, which won't actually get you that far in life. I'm sorry. So, I was like, OK, I can either do school mediocrely or I could help build praxis mediocrely at the same time or I can do one of them well. And I realized I thought back to, you know, like when I was a kid and I was like, well, I've never actually liked school. <laughs> it's always just been something that I put up with. It's like paying taxes, right? It's like I hate it, but I'll, I'll do it so that I don't like get thrown in jail or so that I'm not like homeless on the street. And, you know, I bought into the narrative that we tell kids where it's like if you don't get good grades, you're going to be – you, you know, you're going to be on the street and you're going to be poor, which is also ridiculous. So I ended up taking a year off, uh, moved down to Charleston to work with my colleague, Isaac. Uh, we you know raised a little bit of money. The company started growing and I realized, why would I go back? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I wrote a chapter and this is in, in my book, The End of School, but it's also in another book called um, Why Haven't You Read This Book? About Flipping the Burden of Proof. Why don't you drop out of school? Too many people try to look for reasons why they should stay – why they should drop out, but why are you in school? Why would I go back and pay a ton of money, even with financial aid, pay a ton of money to be miserable, to be, l- to be learning fewer things than I was learning, to be less fulfilled, and to be less productive? I was more productive. I was learning more than I'd ever learned. I was happier. I was doing all these things. Why would I go back? And for me, it was as simple as that. I just looked at Isaac one day. I was sitting in our office. I remember this. And I was like, I just I just think I'm going to drop out. Why? why? What's the purpose, right? So many people, they put their lives on autopilot and they go get that degree without ever asking themselves, why am I doing this?
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I've heard you talk about what motivates someone to be a good student. Mm-hmm. And you said you think there's a kind of freedom in it, right? Like, you'll Mm -hmm. be left alone if you're good. Now, I'll tell you the other side of that. I was a bad student, and I didn't stop hearing about it, you know, from my parents, from my teachers, from the guidance counselors, letters from the school. Uh, It sucked. And I went to college. In the first couple years I was at college, I was also a bad student. I got bad grades, and I behaved poorly as well. You know, so I wound up on academic probation, disciplinary probation. It was like one professor that ultimately turned me around, helped me get my act together and get on the dean's list and stuff like that. But I never had any belief in in myself, really, intellectually. I mean, why would I? Uh, I hated school. I thought that was the measure. So this idea that being a good student was important to you because it bought you a kind of freedom. Um, Right. When did you realize that? Obviously, when you were in middle school, high school, like before college, Right.
1: Uh, I probably realized that in middle school, Okay. Uh, because that, that's when things like kind of start getting serious with school. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, up until then school is for lack of a better way of describing it. It's essentially daycare for parents who didn't think about like, Hey, maybe I should actually spend time with my children. Uh, as a total aside, I know you've interviewed, uh, my friend Jeff Till. And I think that Jeff just makes great points about so many people just put themselves also on autopilot and just send their kids to school as a form of yep. daycare. And sure. I think that's. I think it's horrific, to be entirely honest. Um, But I think it was middle school, right? Because that's when things kind of start getting serious. That's where the school starts to kind of break up into, like, these different tiers. Like, uh, you have honors, and you have, you know, in some schools, you have, like, college prep. And then as you get into high school, you get, like, AP. And for me, you know, with my parents um, and with the community, I knew, you know, if I was a good student, uh, people wouldn't bother me. (laughs) Uh, and this, this translated in you know, my senior year. I was editor of the school newspaper at the school, uh, and I was able – you know, my, my book is actually dedicated to two of my teachers, and one of those teachers was the newspaper teacher who essentially because I was a good student elsewhere and in her class, I was able to just go to her room during other classes and just do what I wanted to do. Yeah. You know, sometimes, you know, a couple times a year that meant actually working on the newspaper. But most of the time that meant, you know, reading things I wanted to read or studying things I wanted to study. Um, so I understand when when someone is a good student, if they're a good student for that reason, I totally do.
0: Yeah. Now, see, I had to steal a pack of hall passes to get that kind of freedom that you had <laughs> earned. Now, did you find when you went to University of Pennsylvania, did you find that still applied that kind of freedom uh... for good students?
1: yeah I mean, it it's it's still applied in a, yeah, it did it did still apply in a certain regard. but also, like by the time when you get to college, like college is this weird, you know Gatto talks about extending adolescence. yeah, um and he 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 hints at this a little bit with college, especially in some of his talks that you can find on YouTube. College is this weird extension of adolescence, right? Like adolescence itself is kind of a weird thing. Um, like sixteen year olds are not supposed to be treated as children. They should be treated as adults, mm-hmm. as young adults, but as adults. Uh, and then college, you know, college kids are not really treated as adults, especially with the the current climate that we have on college campuses, but they're not really treated as children, especially by their parents. I, you know, I talked about this on, on, on my blog the other day. I was uh, down in Fort Myers giving a talk uh, through one of the organizations down there and on the door to the lecture hall was a sign that said parent free zone. And first I thought that was like, oh, like just kind of. Yeah. yeah joke and i was like ha!" and then like my, my like heart just completely sank and i was like this is probably serious because i remember thinking about you can find you know your listeners can just google this right now about like parents bothering professors about their college age children's classes and grades and parents calling in to like find out what their grades are or parents calling in to see if they can get extra credit and it's like your young person is 18, 19 years old. They are an adult by all, by like all traditional definitions besides the student-based definition. Get out of their lives. Mm. But then I have to wonder, no wonder these people also can't find jobs. I, I have actually talked to one or two of our business partners who have told me I've had parents call after interviews for like entry-level jobs. And that's just so appa- appalling and, and also astonishing to me. Call but also say that's an extension what? of school. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess like, hey, you know, like little Johnny's a really hard worker. I think you should hire him. I, I would run as quickly as possible from little Johnny in that case. It's, yeah. Um, uh, it, it's absolutely terrifying. But also like, I, I, I don't want to say, I don't want to say like, you know if we got rid of school, that'd be the panacea for curing a lot of the world's ills, but it probably would actually cure a lot of problems in the long run.
0: I think so. I think we'd have yeah. a society of people who would have to grow up a lot faster. Right. You know, you mentioned extending adolescence. that is one of the most crippling features of not just the lower levels of school but but even higher education as yeah. well. you're twenty three years old before you have a chance to be in relationships with people that are, you know, not authority and underling type right. relationships, you know, right. you don't have friends who are people that you would respect and look up to. Your friends are people just like you. And, and that's, I think that a part of that is people tend to gravitate with people who make them feel okay about how they're doing, not people right. who want to make them better. I think that's yeah. unfortunate, but after 12 years of school, why mm-hmm. would you do anything else? What adults are the people you stay away from, Adults are the people watching you. Adults are the people who yell at you. Uh, why would you want to go anywhere near them?
1: Yeah, and and just there's also this element, you know. I, I I try to stay as far away from you know electoral politics as possible, but it becomes really clear in electoral politics. Uh, you know, Gatto also makes this point uh, that young people, like children and old people and adolescents, like they should interact with each other because that's your like that's your ability to that's what gives you your ability to place yourself like in a context in time. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I was just talking to you before we started, I, I returned from my grandfather's funeral earlier this week and he was a world war II veteran who was born in like steel era Pittsburgh. Right. And was like literally born in the the shadows of the steel mill and just being able to talk to him And to realize, like, oh, that was here and that wasn't that long ago allowed me to actually put myself in a context in time. And a lot of people don't get to experience that because they never interact with people until they're like, I I mean, even after they graduate from school, you know, they go, they go, they get a job as a salesperson at a company and they go out to drinks with people who are their age after they're done. Yeah. And then they go home and like the only old people they ever interact with are their parents.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's
1: in like a broader social sense, it, it makes me a little little uneasy.
0: Sure. I mean, I carried that aversion to seniors with me for a long time. You know, even once I became a libertarian, I was like, ah, baby boomers. What do they know? <laughs> you know, they screwed everything up. But, you you know, you miss great opportunities for wisdom. I mean, I spent so many years arguing with people between the ages of 60 and 80 about politics and how naive they were because they grew up in the 50s, when they had all kinds of wisdom that I failed to unlock just because I would rather be an asshole about how little they know about politics, you know? And that's unfortunate. But I realized, you know, I mean, I haven't done this in a long time, but I went through a period of that. And, you know, upon reflection, I realized I missed a lot of opportunities. But that training probably came from school. Adults are the others.
1: They're to be feared. They're to be... Listen to only to avoid pain. Um, Yeah, and then there's also this really weird element of school too uh, that if you ever spend time around uh, parents of school-age children, Mm -hmm. you'll notice where school – so there's this idea in school of in loco parentis, right? of the school acts in place of the parent, yes, right? And I remember yeah. learning about this when I was like in third grade and just being so appalled. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I don't know if I was just like a natural libertarian or what, but the idea of like the school legally being my parent was so scary to me. Uh So there's this idea while you're at school, the school can essentially act as your parent, but then you go home, and the idea should be like your parent acts as your parent. But what we actually see, and we see this more and more and more as so many parents just drop their kids off at like after-school programs until 5 or 6 in the evening, and then they come home and they do homework. The parent is actually an enforcer for the school. So people don't even get to develop natural, healthy relationships with their parents they view their own parents as extensions of the school, where the parent comes home and they argue with the kid to get their homework done. They argue with the kid to like fill out all the paperwork. They argue with the their their child to about going and getting to bed on time so they can get out of bed at like five thirty in the morning to go to school. And that's that is, I think, probably one of the most nefarious aspects of the existing school regime that we have, because it, it destroys whether or not you're like kind of somebody who places a very large emphasis on the family, it does destroy that as like a basic social unit and mm-hmm. it puts it in the context of the state. Yeah. It's a wedge. Is,
0: yeah. Yeah. Uh, my advice to parents when I used to tutor, cause I would deal with that a lot, you know, people would yeah. say, well, you know, the school said, and I would say when, when there's a conflict that you have to mediate between your son and a teacher, your son and the principal start from the working position that your your child is Right. Right. And that that seems unnatural. But just don't assume that you this is something that you have to jump in and resolve quickly. And the way to resolve it in the most expedient manner is to take the side of the school because they have all the power and you have all the power. So why don't you guys be teammates? Right. You know, take the position that your child is right, because a lot of the times and I would even give them examples just like, hey, you know, like last week I was in uh, Needham, Massachusetts and a teacher said this and that was completely insane and they were wrong. And I would give right. them examples of, you know, instances I'd had, had where the, the school had been wrong or the teacher had been wrong or the principal or the guidance counselor whatever. And I think that empowered them or, or at least gave them pause to like rethink that. Like, all right, well, I'll start. From the position that I'm on my kid's side, yeah. what a novel idea! And, and mediate <laughs> from there.
1: And it, it not only it not only humanizes your child, which that seems like when you say it objectively, that seems like a horrific thing that needs to be said. <laughs> right, right. Um, right. It not only humanizes your child, but it also allows you to actually get to know them. You know, Peter Gray in, in his phenomenal book that came out what like two or three years ago, free to learn. Makes this point that the reason why he he's a psychologist up in Boston, uh, the reason why he got interested in how people naturally learn, which is through play, was because he was in the school and in the principal's office and his child was acting up and his child told him to told him the principal to go to hell. And like most parents, they would probably get up and like hit their kids, which is also like a whole other issue. But he actually stopped and he thought to himself, "Okay, like, why is my young child telling me and this principal here to go to hell? Like something has to be pretty terrible. And that's actually what allowed him to go and consciously think about education and consciously think about how people learn, humanely learn and naturally learn. So, again, if you read like a transcript of what we're saying right now, the fact that it has to be said is kind of scary.
0: Indeed. Hold on. I've got a problem with a cat. I just need to pause for a second. There's a cat <laughs> at my feet. What's wrong with you? Oh, gosh.
1: <laughs> I, I can hear it.
0: So we're picking up after just a short break here for the podcast listeners. And I do want to say, I, I wanted to keep this out of the show, but they're is a a misbehaving cat at my feet that is just growling every time I talk. And it's, it's a very ornery cat. I, I try never to touch it. So if I'm attacked, suddenly that's what you hear. And
1: if the line goes dead,
0: if the line goes dead, the cat's name was Molly. And that's what you should tell the police, but you can hear (laughs) the cat. People are going to be able to hear it growling. So just to finish up today, Zach, I want to talk about this book you wrote, The End of School Reclaiming yeah. Education from the Classroom. And I wanted to get a soundbite from you, since this is one of our main directives here at the School Sucks Project. What is the difference between school and education?
1: School is a context, education is an active school, education is a verb, right? The difference between school and education is one that is entirely based on coercion and is one entirely based on the decision of the person learning, right? Mm-hmm. I don't even like to call them student because student's a ridiculously passive term. Education is something that happens, that ought to happen throughout your entire life. It's something that happens through engagement in things that are meaningful to you. Meaningful work results in education. You know, I, Any of your listeners, I'm sure, can identify with a time when they were young or or maybe even recently when they were doing something that they were really, really interested in, they fall into kind of like the state of flow and like hours go by and what feels like minutes. And they've learned a lot of things, right? Yeah, That is education. And that's ideally how people ought to learn. School is an entirely coercive context. Sometimes education happens at it, right? Like sometimes education happens at school, but The vast majority of time, I actually think they are they are counter to each other because what school teaches us is that school teaches us that education is work. It's something it's drudgery, not work in like kind of this Randian like productive uh, labor kind of sense, but work in the sense of like drudgery. It's something that has to be done that we need to get done throughout the day. And then we go home and we like turn on the TV and like crack open a beer. Right.
0: Learning equals pain. Yeah.
1: Learning equals pain. Education equals pain, suffering, drudgery, kind of like this puritanistic idea when in reality, it, the, the truth is further. It, it can't be further than from that. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is why, like, I don't rant rant and rail particularly about public education. Like, I think there are nefarious things about public education, I think, in the history of compulsory state schooling. That's very, very important, that compulsory element. But it's the function of schools. Not by the function of like that they're paid for by tax dollars. It's the function that they are compulsory. Mm-hmm. It's the function of them being this passive context of somebody standing at the top of the room and a bunch of people sitting in a chair all day. That is what makes school particularly nefarious and nefarious to the end of education.
0: Sure. I mean, the only thing that school really isn't nefarious for is like the shortcut industry, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> right. gyms hate him. Like, we've seen that ad, right? Uh, <laughs> fastest way, easiest way, you know, all right, that stuff. Right.
1: Like- how can I reduce the pain as much as possible to just get through this day right how can i i mean I, I, everybody knows that you know when you were learning algebra or, or like division, you had that one teacher who was like, "Show your work and how annoying that was, but in reality, you know my my colleague Isaac posted on Facebook the other day uh, a, a status that was something along the lines of uh, the idea that people need to learn things at certain times, mm-hmm. you know that we need to learn arithmetic at this age, we need to learn reading at this age is totally absurd, especially in an age where you can just Google how to do something. Right. And somebody commented on it saying like, oh, well, you know, knowing how to do something and how that thing works are two different things. And I don't necessarily disagree with that person, but if you agree with what that person said and you agree with the idea that knowing how things work when you do them – so like knowing how division works or knowing how like basic mechanics works – if, if you find that valuable, then you should be opposed to compulsory school, <laughs> right? Because school, it gives people all the incentives to not learn those things.
0: Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, I used to teeter these SAT kids who thought math was magic. Like they just right. they'd never been taught. They just said, if you encounter this situation, you plug in this thing like it was a magic spell. You know, right. so that nobody had any sense of meaning the they, context from everything. and they didn't right? care. If you they remove the care. context
1: from it, then you're you're smart. <laughs> exactly, absolutely. We, we get so totally on its head. Um, so, like the the name of the book, "The End of School," is kind of kind of, I guess, a double entendre. It's I I look for I look forward to the day when we actually do have the end of school, right? Mm-hmm. The end of compulsory state schooling when it is gone. And we look back on it with complete horror and disgust, which I am confident is the way that we will look back on it. Yeah. But it's also what is the purpose of school, right? Like what, are, what is the end, meaning like the purpose of school? And the purpose of school is not the purpose of education. That, there's that much. We know that much. If you want to break it down into the history, like if you want, to, if you want the history of school, you know, Gatto's underground history is phenomenal. Uh, but the purpose is not to learn.
0: Hey, I used end as a double entendre as well. And sucks. School sucks podcast. The end of public education. Bad word choice. Ah, I should ah. have said school. I should have I had to eventually throw T-shirts away because uh, (laughs) I just outgrew that. You know, I did a show recently on The Breakfast Club. You know, they spend all this time questioning the nature of their families and the nature of their relationships with peers and adults. School never comes up. You know, school. There's never any auditing of the school experience itself. Like it sucks, but they discuss alternatives for their relationships. They discuss alternatives for their, you know, the the situation they're in with their parents or their families. But school just is, you know, the water that they're in. And oh, yeah, that's school, unfortunate. school is
1: just a given of the world. And that is, you know, you know, I am very confident that we like I said, we'll look back on school, compulsory schooling, and just be terrified and horrified that people like put little little humans through that, right? Mm-hmm. For 12 years straight. But at the same time, there is this kind of like uneasiness in my stomach because what we're experiencing right now in the United States is the first generation that is fully schooled, where school just is the state of the world. Yeah, Unless you know homeschoolers, which thankfully more and more people do. Everyone just goes to school. It's just a given you go to school. It's a given that you have kids that for a couple years, you know, you might actually have to interact with them. Oh, God forbid. And then you put them in a pre-pre-K program, and then they go to a pre-K program, and then, you know, 12 years later, you send them off to college. That's just totally a given. And uh, when you get to a a state of the world where something that is very much – that should not be a given is suddenly a given, getting out of that mindset that it is – is it's it's quite a quite a task it's hard yeah
0: that idea of from the cradle schooling that that is new you know i mean i was home until i was 5 yeah. so this is one of the things that excites me about praxis and um you know i mean i hope you guys obviously are hugely successful but i hope other things like praxis spring up as well i mean you yep. guys seem like you're when i first when isaac and i first talked about it i think last year uh, i never heard of much like it you know, yeah. I, there's certainly not a really competitive market for what you're doing. I mean, do you, are you going out and seeking people or do you have people coming to you? Are you turning people away? Like, what's your um, admission rate compared to like a, a college? Maybe it's about
1: 10 to 15 percent.
0: Oh, all right. So, yeah, you do have people coming to you. That's great.
1: We yeah we do have people coming to us and we do turn people away. Um, and we do we do actively go to people too. Like we do have, we do do recruiting. We do do marketing. We want people to come and apply to the program. Now it's ten to fifteen percent. And this was this is something else I I want to throw out. Going back to our earlier topic on college admissions. Yeah. College college admissions departments will purposely get people to apply who they know they're going to reject. Yep. Uh, that again. If you, just, if you just use like a homo economicus model, you understand like that's in their rational self-interest. You know, it's not evil. It's just what they do. Because if you are the University of Pennsylvania and you uh, want to stay high in like the rankings reports because your alumni will feel proud and send you money, then one of the things that contributes to the rankings is your admissions rate. Right. Okay. So how do you keep your admissions rate low or actually drop your admissions rate without admitting fewer students? You get more people to apply. Exactly. You, you turn more people away. So they know that there are people who are they they're getting to apply every year that they're trying to turn away. We don't do that. We have a 10 to 15 percent acceptance rate simply because 10 to 15 percent of the people who I, I'm just confident 10, 15 percent of the people out there it, are up to doing hard things. It's a yeah. very like practice. This is not easy. It's it's ridiculously fulfilling. And what our participants do, they, they accelerate their careers by you know four or five, six years within a year. Very, very easily but it's it's not easy, so if I had a thousand people who applied and uh, a thousand business partners to take them, they were all practice quality. We'd have a one hundred percent acceptance rate. Mm-hmm, sure. so that's an important caveat to throw in there, but yeah we turn we turn participants away, I turn companies away all the time. Um, I am always interested in having new business partners, but I need to make sure that the business partner like understands Praxis, that they get what we're doing. Yeah. One of the most important things for me is just get on the phone. And if they tell me, I wish this was around when I was younger, that's almost always a great fit. Uh, if they, they're like, Oh, well, I'll send you over to our HR department and you can talk about interns there. And it's like, no, they're, we're not an internship program. They just don't get it at that point. And it's probably not going to be a good fit. You know, we've got business partners all over the United States, and I'm uh, I i have to I'm going and finding new ones, and I'm also turning ones that come to us away and adding new ones if they come to us. So if I, if I can throw this in real quickly, if any of your listeners are running growing businesses, reach out to me. I can send them some great talent.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just to stress that it's not an internship, people are no, getting okay. paid to get this experience, and you right. have even talked about having basically a net zero or even – You actually make money. I, I guess it would be net positive – Tuition yeah. expense,
1: right? Yeah, no, the, the student at the end of the day, the the participant is our customer. Uh, they pay us a tuition for all the things that they do with us, their education experience, the placement, and then the business pays them a wage of $15 an hour as a minimum. So they end up earning back everything they pay us plus more, and they're guaranteed a job that pays at least $40,000 a year when they're done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's a job guarantee. So if they hit the goals that their business partner sets for them during the program, they walk away. What $40,200, $42,400 in the green? Yeah. So
0: that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I hope as time goes by, this does become by and large a better credential than the college degree because the exciting ripple effect of that is what justifies the existence of high school these days? Yeah. To get into college.
1: What made me so interested in. K through 12 education more than anything else. Like, yeah, I, I like I said, I, I was someone who like balked at like the no child left behind stuff and school was always kind of a burden to me. But what really got me interested in this and like made me decide I'm going to go, I'm going to write this book. I'm going to, you know, do more stuff on this. I'm, I'm working on stuff on like de schooling now mm-hmm. is see doing recruiting for Praxis and seeing people coming out of college and seeing people going into college and realizing it's not just college. It is, like, college is just the tip of the iceberg of all the things that, you know, young people coming out of college and not being able to find a job. It's not just college that makes it difficult for them to find jobs. Exactly. Uh, It's the 12 years behind it, too.
0: Absolutely, where there are so many, so deeply ingrained habits. Can can I ask just what kind of work you're doing on de-schooling?
1: Yeah, so, so like I mentioned earlier, there's this... I call it de-schooling. Um, there's this we, – we graduate from school. We leave school, whatever, and we're we're stuck in very much of what I call a schooled mindset, right? Yeah. And a schooled mindset is one that at its core does view learning as work, does view learning as drudgery, uh, you know, maybe if you're lucky, certain types of learning aren't drudgery, but for most people, like almost all learning is drudgery, whether it's, uh, learning a new language or going to eat, learning, you know, about your own body and like going to the gym or things like that. Right. But it, even deeper than that, it's that the world is kind of broken up into these levels like school is like that you can level up if you check off the right boxes. Right. Right. And it. it it, it 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 might sound a little like a hippy dippy at first because it, it goes back to like this idea of like, oh well, you know, it, people in their little boxes in their neighborhoods and they drive in their little boxes, but the reality of life and the reality of the world is that it's not like that. It's much more gradient. Uh you don't have, you know, unless you're a bureaucrat or you're a private bureaucrat working in a very, very large organization, you don't check off boxes to get to the next level of the game. And people view very many elements of their lives like this. And the first introduction to life like this is school. It's grades, it's classes. Mm -hmm. And if you go through that for 12, 16, 18, 20 years, of course you're going to view the rest of the world that way. And of course you're going to have a a quarter-life crisis when you come out of school and you realize like, oh, the world isn't quite like that. Or you're going to have a midlife crisis when you can't keep leveling up anymore. Like why Mm -hmm. do most people have kids? Just because it's what you do. Why do most people you know, get a nine-to-five job? Because it's what you do. It's part of leveling up to the next level of the game. Why do you buy a house? Same exact thing. So I think that when we're in a schooled mindset, it blocks our ability to focus on things. It blocks our ability to get into a state of flow. And it's it blocks our ability to experience learning as play. Mm-hmm. And – My goal with working with these things is to figure out how can we train ourselves to reclaim those three elements, right? Absolutely. To reclaim that state of flow, to reclaim the state of play, and to reclaim an ability to actually focus on things.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of uh, aspects of life that are directed or controlled by a crippling fear of failure. Not yeah. that people should go out and try to fail to have a sweet story about, oh, you wouldn't believe it. I was living <laughs> in my car and I never knew, right, right, you know, but not to be so uh, averse to the idea of failure or or because, right. I mean, that's the thing with school. Failure meant staying in the same place. It meant an unchecked box and no forward movement. You couldn't right. get to the end. I mean, everything in life, it's, it's so weird how this like I hear so many people who are my age or older and i'm not even that old talking about retirement right. why right <laughs> the because it's the end that's right. when you know it, i uh, they just keep deferring gratification to this this you know it was graduating from high school then it was graduating from college right. then it was right. buying the house then it was becoming the boss and now it's it's retirement like that is definitely um a schooled mindset
1: and a lot of people don't even make it that far you know uh, there's this, you, you, your series, by the way, again, this is, I guess this is plugging you on your own podcast, but cool. for your listeners who haven't, haven't like listened to your series on Gatto's underground history, you mm-hmm. know, though, the book is a behemoth. It's, it's very, very, it's, it's very dense, but your series on YouTube that you have, uh, one of the videos, uh, of the series, the new dumbness, it gets at this very, very well, right? People experience these quarter life crises or midlife crises because, they get to a level where they realize that their credentials and their degrees and their pieces of papers and their signatures from people with fancier titles than them don't actually mean anything. They don't necessarily translate into actually knowing how to like have a family, how to have a loving family, how to have a fulfilling career. It's, it's not necessarily hard to reach the boxes that mean success, but to actually experience what success is is something very few people know how to do.
0: Yeah, the new dumbness... I think it describes a bunch of people who look smart on paper, yeah. but don't really know how to do anything that truly makes them happy. God, Zach, I feel like we could talk forever. I'm glad you <laughs> listened to the show. I think that's cool. I really enjoy uh, your your show as well. And um, uh, the book's out. Can we promote that to, oh, to yeah. my audience? How can they get it?
1: It's on Amazon, uh, just the end of school. Uh, it is both available as an ebook on Kindle and it is available, uh, in print as well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, early next year, uh, the 25th anniversary edition of John Taylor Gatto's Dumbing Us Down is going to be released. This is like an announcement, Mm -hmm. um, and I've written the forward to that as well. So keep your eyes peeled for. If you haven't read Dumbing Us Down, you absolutely should read it. Uh, if you have, I recommend picking up another copy and reading the forward in it.
0: That's awesome. I have a forward coming too for uh, the Underground History book. Oh, awesome! Yeah, they. Um, was it uh, Dave who asked you to do it? Is that who you connect with?
1: Um, no, I, I met Dave recently. Yeah, um, I met him at a conference, a uh, great, wonderful guy. Uh, but the Dumbing Us Down is under another publisher that's actually, I think, out of Vancouver. Yeah. So they saw one of my articles online, picked up my book and other things like that. And they're like, oh, you know. John loves what you're doing with Praxis. He loves this idea of like an apprenticeship for other elements of the of the world, not just like being a plumber or an electrician. Yeah. Uh, would you like to write the forward? I was like, absolutely.
0: <laughs> That's very, very cool. I On mean, YouTube. I think I
1: learned about Gatto. And when I remember reading, the first one was Weapons of Mass Instruction for me. I was just like, it, it's, it's, it's similar experience that a lot of people experience like the first time they read Ayn Rand, right? It's like, yeah. someone's finally speaking to this that, that I've been feeling for all these years. This is amazing. Um, and I, I think I learned about him through those 15 videos. So thank you.
0: My pleasure. Yeah. It's interesting that like, oh, this just vague feeling of discomfort has a voice, an articulate voice. It has a (laughs) justification. It has bulleted lists of reasons why this makes sense. Sweet. Oh, it's got a history. Wonderful. That was a, a kind of an exciting revelation that I guess we've gone through several times in life in several different areas, whether it was politics or economics or education or yep. philosophy. Very, very cool. So I sincerely mean this. How can I and people in my audience, if they're interested, help mm-hmm. Praxis?
1: If you know any young people, you know, 17 to 20, ish mm-hmm. uh, So in their 20s, meaning uh, that, you know, you think can work hard, that you think are excited about working, are excited about creating value in the real world, uh, and you think would jump at that opportunity, introduce them to us. Uh, My email address is Zachary, Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y, at discoverpraxis.com. Shoot me an email. Uh, We're also very active on Facebook, Uh, so you can find us at facebook.com forward slash discoverpraxis. Uh, like I said, my email address is Zachary at discoverpraxis.com. We've got a great blog over there. Uh, we put out content regularly on everything from, you know, how to get hired as a young person without a credential to the difference between being a student and being an entrepreneur as a mindset. So, uh, check out our website. And like I said, if you're interested or you might know someone who's interested, shoot me an email, get on chat with us. We'd love to talk to you. If you are a business owner and you're interested in hosting one of our participants, also let us know. Uh, you can either email me. We have, if you go to our website, we've got a nice little like chat bubble in the lower right hand corner. Uh, we're almost always on that, so you can chat with us there. We are actually there. It's not like a call center in like Bangladesh. <laughs> Spread the good word, you know. And if you, are hi- if you are hiring, and you don't necessarily think that you're going to be a good practice business partner. The best thing an employer can do is just remove the degree requirement. I understand that that can be hard because you'll just get like a ton of applicants. Mm-hmm. but a lot of the applicants you're going to get aren't going to be much worse than the applicants you're getting already. Or what I see a lot of companies moving towards, and this was you know even two or three years ago, I started seeing this, is on their uh, hiring requirements, they'll say uh, you know bachelor's degree and whatever required, or equivalent work experience. And equivalent work experience, I've talked to some of our business partners who have this. To them, equivalent work experience is like six months. Yeah. (laughs) It's not four years. (laughs) That's funny. It's like six months. The tide is turning. You're seeing two things happen at once. One is you are seeing more degree inflation, Mm. uh, meaning like you need a bachelor's degree to like be a janitor now. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are more janitors with uh, chemical engineering degrees in the United States today than there are chemists, I think. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So you do see that on one side of the spectrum, but on the other side of the spectrum, you are seeing companies like our Praxis business partners who are like, we just need good help. We need people who are smart, hardworking, excited about creating value. And once you've got that – if you're not in a large bureaucracy, once you've got that – your foot in the door – Nobody's going to ask you about that credential at one point or another anyway.
0: Right. You're going to
1: so impress them above and beyond what you can have. And if you're starting at 17, 18 years old, like I mentioned one of our uh, several, a lot of our practice participants are like this, but like one of our practice participants here in Atlanta, he is leading up a sales, uh, a sales development division at his business partner. He's eight and he's 18. He's on track to become a sales executive. Yeah. That's something a lot of people aren't on track for at 25.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I would love to interview more people who yeah. who are involved. So maybe that's something we could talk about in the future. Hey, I'd be happy to have you on the show anytime and uh, I'd if be you happy ever, to be back. Yeah, if you ever needed a guest, let me know. I really enjoyed the conversation. Zach, thanks so much for coming on School Sucks.
1: Thank you, Brett. i really enjoyed it.
0: Hello there, and thank you for sticking through all the way to the end of the show. If you are getting value out of these presentations, consider returning value and then getting more value. What do I mean by that? There's a couple of ways this can work. First of all, you can support the School Sucks Project and our efforts through this essential School Sucks collection and our future efforts. I am uh, going out on the interview circuit Just last night, I was on my friend Richard Grove's show, Grand Theft World, for a couple hours. I might have some big interview announcements coming up soon. So I am uh, hitting the streets, as they say, to promote what we're doing with School Sucks, promote what we've done at schoolsucksproject.com and on YouTube, and you can lend your support by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash schoolsucks. In fact, you can look through the show notes and see numerous, maybe you're looking for something less of a commitment, but you can see numerous ways to support us there. I want to say a huge thank you to Gary D, who just became a monthly supporter using Bitcoin and challenged me to find a way to do month-to-month recurring Bitcoin payments. I'm working on it, Gary. Thank you for the encouragement. We also have a digital knowledge product that I'm extremely proud of. It's called the Ideas Into Action Summit. It's linked right there in the show notes. It is a gosh darn masterclass on the critical thinking process needed to be more persuasive. There's a section on best practices for acquiring new information, learning. A second section on assimilating that information, logic. And a third section on presenting that information in a persuasive way or rhetoric. And I brought in a great collection of media creators. Zach is there. You like Zach? He's there. He gives a great presentation uh, in the first section. But that's a great way to do the value for value and then more value exchange with me, you get a lot of value on the back end of that one, including lifetime membership in our private uh, community. We have three hours of zoom call meetings every week where we interact. And last week we had a, a really great conversation in one of the meetings about using that time more as like a mastermind. So like somebody can bring a problem. It could be a parenting problem. It could be a professional problem. It could be a personal problem. Like people are getting to know each other and be friends in there, in a in a really really nice way. So you know, with a certain size group, we could really run the university private community meetings like masterminds if people wanted to participate in something like that. So it's soft socializing, just like regular social media, but it's also support and accountability. It is a group entirely away from the watchful eye of Mark Zuckerberg and friends. And you become a lifetime member when you purchase the Ideas into Action Summit. That's S-S-P-University. Just spell that university.com slash ideas into action to see how the whole program works. And until July 5th, you can use the coupon code INDEPENDENCE at checkout to save 30% on the cost of enrolling. And finally, for some of you, one of the best ways to get value from the show, return value to me, and then get, at this point, an almost immeasurable amount of additional value in return, would be to support our partner for this Essential School Sucks endeavor, and that partner is Praxis. Click the link in the show notes, or you can go to discoverpraxis.com slash school sucks podcast to get a copy of the free book that explains a lot of their secrets and practices. It's called Forward Tilt. It is by Praxis founder, Isaac Morehouse, and Praxis graduate, Hannah Frankman. And I want to just make sure there's kind of a, a clear expectation of how the Praxis program works in the current moment. So months one through three are called a boot camp where participants learn how business works, They discover career paths that might be available to them and match their interests. They also get coaching on how to develop a personal brand and build the confidence required for that kind of self-assertion, putting yourself out into the world like that as an individual. Months four through six are called placement. So here they create a professional portfolio that showcases their current skills and developing skills. They get access to the entire Praxis hiring network, which has probably expanded enormously since that conversation you just heard with Zach they start working with a placement coach and developing a plan for good fit opportunities with businesses and they start doing interviews at growing innovative companies months 7 through 12 are the actual apprenticeship that's 5 months of real world experience so they get an apprenticeship coach they start a full time paid apprenticeship applying the new skills and knowledge that they've learned in the practice program so far wow gaining extremely valuable, again, real world, not college, real world experience and the ability to learn from entrepreneurs and established professionals. One more step. This one might be kind of startling to some of us who chose a different path. Month 12, graduation. Leave the program. Keep your full-time job. Gain lifetime access to the Praxis Hiring Network and Mastermind community. Continue your career with confidence. That's how the program works. It's a year. So if you are the parent of a teen, or you are the teen, please go to com slash school sucks podcast and start learning more. All right. We'll be back soon with the final episode in the second section of the Essential School Sucks. And then we're going to be moving on to a collection of shows in a brand new topic, the principles of critical thinking and self-directed learning. I'm so excited to get started with that. All right. Bye.